Galatians 1, let's begin with verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brethren who are with me, he's writing now, to the churches of Galatia, a region, not a specific church, a group of churches. Paul continues, grace to you. And peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins this letter, we also call it an epistle, to the Galatians. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's evident that the Apostle Paul wastes no time getting to the very heart of his issue, of what the entire letter is all about. One word, grace. In the Greek, this word grace is charis, which simply means favor. should be noted, though, that the word itself came from the Greek word chero, which means to rejoice. So it's a favor that yields a rejoicing. And 156 times that this particular Greek word is used in the New Testament, grace takes on a redemptive quality, describing an action whereby God avails his favor to those who patently don't deserve it. Some have defined the biblical concept of grace as unmerited favor. Others have more creatively defined it using the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Notice the order that Paul begins with. He says, grace followed by what? And peace. And it's not an accident that every single time in the Bible you find this coupling. Grace and peace. The order is always the same. Thirteen times in Paul's epistles, in each of Peter's letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, once then by John, 2 John 1, 3, and then again by Jesus himself in Revelation 1, 4. Grace and peace. Understand, it is impossible for you to experience the peace of God until you first fully embrace the grace of God. For if salvation, how we're saved, or sanctification, how we become like Jesus, has any basis in your works or your merit, lasting peace for your soul is never attainable. Friend, the only way that you can truly have peace, don't we long for that? It's when you first find rest and God's amazing grace. Also note that according to Paul, both grace and peace are not something that a man can provide for himself or something he can attain or create. Grace and peace are something that, according to Paul, must be given or bestowed by God alone. They both originate peace and grace in God before being extended to us. Paul says, look at it again, grace and peace where? From God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Neither God's favor nor his peace, according to Paul, can be earned or even found apart from God's willingness to give them to us. What that means is that if you're tired this morning, not just tired of like 
I got little ones running around and I'm just exhausted. But like the deep soul tired of just the struggle, the spiritual battle, what we might call the rat race. If you're, if you're tired of always trying to earn God's approval and never feeling as though you measure up, tired of trying to be good, of the striving, of the fighting, of the failing. If you're tired, please realize the human soul will never find peace apart from the grace of God. After introducing us to the bestower of grace and peace, which is whom? God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues by immediately explaining how it is that Jesus has both the authority and the ability to bestow those things. Okay, grace and peace flow from God to us. I can't achieve it, it must be given. It's given by Jesus, but how does he have the authority or the ability to do that? Well, Paul says that Jesus gave himself for our sins. That is how we receive God's favor and his peace. It's, it's crucially important. You understand. No man or woman can accept a savior for sins unless he's first willing to acknowledge he sins. It's only logical that before there can be any remedy to a proposed solution, a problem, before you can propose a solution, what must happen first is that the person has to at least acknowledge the existence of and assume a recognition of a problem. Like you're never gonna get well if you won't admit you're sick. You're never gonna find a remedy if you don't admit there's a problem. You're never going to accept Jesus as a savior for sin if you don't admit you sin. You know, I've found that many good people fail to accept Jesus as a savior. Now that, that doesn't mean they reject Jesus. Very few people blatantly, openly, vehemently reject Jesus. Most people though, they, they reject him as savior by accept it, accepting him instead as a loving friend. Jesus is my BFF, my best friend forever. Jesus, you know what? Man, a moral example. It's by his example I try to live my life. Jesus is even just a benevolent God. But because people will refuse to see themselves for what they are, a sinner, they'll refuse to accept Jesus for what he is, a savior. And since this is the tragic case, there are many people today who subsequently fail to encounter Jesus as a savior for sin, which is what he wanted to be known by more than anything else. You see, the first step to God's grace and his peace is the acknowledgement that Jesus had to give himself for your sins. That you've fallen short of who you were designed to be. That there's something fundamentally broken. I'm going to say something here that's going to come across a bit controversial. I don't think it is, but just bear with me. Jesus might love you just the way that you are. But that doesn't mean he loves the way that you are. Let me say that again. Jesus might love you just the way that you are, but that doesn't mean he loves the way that you are. 
Sadly, there are so many people in our culture, Christian culture, who misrepresent Jesus' love for the person as his acceptance of that person's condition, the way that person is. Sure, Jesus loves you, even though you're fallen and you're broken and you're messed up. He loves you in your dysfunction, but he doesn't want to leave you dysfunctional because that really wouldn't be love. Yes, he, he loves you. You come to him, you're fallen, you're broken, you're messed up. But when you encounter him, what's Jesus' intention? To transform you so that what? You're no longer fallen. What was broken is mended. What was messed up is corrected. In Luke chapter four, Jesus, preaching his sermon to his hometown crowd of Nazareth, he issues a mission statement, like what he's come to do. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Do, do you see that Jesus came for broken people, not to leave them broken? If you're held captive, he's come to set you free. If you're hurting, he's come to heal you. If you're messed up, he wants to set you right. Jesus has one intention for you. Not to capitulate to your brokenness, but to save you, to transform you, to change you, to restore you. Jesus' plan for you is to make you into something you presently aren't. And I don't know about you, that excites me. Because my biggest problem is who I am. I need that constant renovation, that constant transformation, that change. I don't want Jesus to leave me in my pride or my arrogance or my insecurity. I want him to make me into something I'm not. You see, Jesus was willing to, as Paul says, give himself, why? Yes, so you could have peace. Yes, you, so you could have grace by dealing with your problem, you, your sinful state. Which on that thread, let me clarify one thing. And people get this wrong. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Like the fundamental problem with man boils down to a heart condition, a fallen state, which makes the tinkering of one's behaviors frivolous and often ineffective. The heart manifests action, but my actions don't always represent my heart. We have a, we have a, a, a slang word for that, a poser. Like you're acting a part. That's not who you are. See, I can get down on all four legs and start barking like a dog. But that doesn't, I can act like a dog, but that doesn't make me a dog. Why, my nature is human. My dog, though I think she's a human, isn't. Because while she acts like it, she's still a dog. See, outside, you, you are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Your problem is a heart issue. You see, with that in mind, what man needs most is not a religious set of codes 
that aim at redefining or refining his behavior. What man needs is a savior willing to completely atone for his sin, impart an alien righteousness, and one who is able to permanently transform the nature of one's heart. If you wanna change what you do, don't focus on what you do, focus on who you are. A heart change will work itself out through your life and affect what you do. You see, what you need is your debt paid. We call it atonement. Your core problem addressed. It's it's the redemption of of the heart and the mind and the soul. What you need is, is a lasting remedy imparted. We call it a regeneration of your core desires brought forth through the indwelling of God's spirit. Where where the prophet says that God's intention is to take out that heart of stone and replace it with his. You know what you're really good at? Sinning. I mean, mean, it's not rocket science. If you're faced with a decision, right and wrong, what's the easier choice? Always. Always. It's to do the wrong thing. Like everything is screaming, do that. It's easy. And not only that, I'm really good at it. I'm really good at doing the wrong thing. You know what's hard? Doing the right thing. And yet when you come to Christ, it's not that it's, it's now easier. It's that what I want has changed. I don't want to do the wrong thing anymore. I don't want to live that life anymore. I, I, my desires have morphed. They've changed. I now want to please God. It doesn't make it easier. But what I want has transformed, meaning now what I do changes. This is why Jesus gave himself for your sins. It's interesting. We're told Jesus gave himself. You know, John 3, 16, we're told for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No doubt communicating the, the great love of the Father for us. And yet in this passage, Paul affirms that Jesus gave himself. Yes, the Father gave him, but Jesus was a willing and able participant. He wanted to lay down his life. Why? For your sins. And why would Jesus do this? The answer? Well, Paul says, He gave himself that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever, that he might deliver us. He might, deliverance. In the Greek, this particular word, it means to pluck out, to choose, or to rescue. The word could literally be translated as liberate. Jesus wants to liberate you from this present evil age. Sure, there's no doubt that Jesus died to save us from the judgment of hell. And often, that's the great sales pitch of salvation, right? Come to Jesus, he died on the cross. Hey, you want the golden ticket to heaven? So that when you die, you know where you're gonna go, that great Willy Wonka factory? And you're like, yeah, I want that, sign me up. I got the golden ticket, but like it's gonna be 70 years so I can cash it in. You see, yes, salvation, what Jesus did, this liberation is not just for eternity. While great, Jesus is for this present evil age that what Jesus died to do to liberate us from is a present experience. Salvation is always presented in the Bible as a past work where I'm saved from who I was, a present work where I'm being saved from who I am, and then a future work where I'm saved from judgment. 
But there is this present working of Jesus in the hearts of people. Verse 6, Paul then says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul, Paul transitions, like he lays out, you know what God wants for you? Grace. He wants to, dim- not judgment, not condemnation, grace. Why? Because once you get his grace, your heart fills with his peace. Not a peace based totally on circumstance, but a peace that anchors my soul, a peace that no matter what's happening around me, I could be in the middle of a war, a middle of a storm, a middle of a trial, but I've got something that I can't even explain, a peace that I know God has it, that God loves me and he's working through me. Paul says it's a peace that surpasses understanding. Jesus died on the cross to deliver you, to liberate you from this present evil age, then to exchange it for grace and peace. That's glorious. Now Paul's like, I marvel after establishing how awesome that is. He says, I marvel. It indicates a speed, a surprise. He's literally saying, I'm, 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 I'm shocked at how quickly what was happening. Paul says, you are turning away from him. The pressing question we must consider is what were the Galatian believers turning away from? In the context, they were turning or adopting a different gospel, which did what? Caused them to turn from Jesus. This gospel, this different gospel, was leading them away from Christ. This phrase we have, turning away, it's much stronger in the Greek language. Paul isn't saying that you're adopting this mindset, therefore you're leaving Jesus. Instead, what Paul is saying is he's saying, you're adopting this mindset, you're abandoning Jesus. You know what? You're a turncoat, a traitor. You're selling him out. Like the language here, then fighting words. He ain't being nice. He's not tiptoeing around the issue. Paul comes right out in the first seven verses and punches their teeth in. You are abandoning Jesus, the one who gave himself. Now, how does such a dramatic thing like that happen to people who have at one point come to the cross? Because Paul's writing to Christians, he's writing to the church who's adopting this this legalistic anti-gospel. We'll get to it in a minute. And he's like, I'm blown away. You're turning away from Jesus. How do people who come to the cross, who experience that first work, that first love, his sacrifice, what he's done, when he changes your heart, he does this work, how is it that people who have been to the cross depart from it or turn away from it? Here's the answer. This turning away happens the moment your relationship with Jesus becomes based on anything other than his grace, the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul says these Galatians were departing from Jesus and the saving and transforming power of his grace to what he calls here a different gospel. 
which I love the way Paul, you know, his, his free-flowed train of thought. He's like, you're turning to a different gospel. And then he's like, which isn't another one. And then he says, as a matter of fact, it's a perversion, a perverted gospel. Amazing. Note this word different, it means literally not one of the same kind. What Paul is saying is that this different gospel was not an effective alternative. It was a perversion, a distortion. Whereas the true gospel gloriously bases your favor with God and the continuance of that favor on God's grace, his grace, period. These men in Galatia, they were perverting the nature of grace by formulating and teaching what we would just call anti-gospels. Now, now when we say anti-something, we don't mean that it's something against it, like the Antichrist. It's not like someone against Christ. It is a replacement Christ. That's what it means uh, in the Greek language. An Antichrist is a replacement Christ, or an anti-gospel is a replacement gospel to the true gospel, which is grace, grace alone. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. That type of grace Grace and grace alone, his work and his work alone, they were departing from that. And I have found that there are three ways that the grace of God is distorted to create these anti-gospels, these distorted gospels. Now the first is that there is an anti-gospel. I'm going to frame this in a a very simple uh, mental picture here. The true gospel is grace period. Grace in that alone, okay? But people pervert the gospel by doing this. Grace, comma, and do these things. That's the first perversion of grace. It says that you are saved and sanctified by grace and the things you do for God. Sadly, there are people who see the true nature of the gospel as being simply too good to be true. I mean, how could God's favor really require nothing of me, right? That his favor is designed to be received and not earned, that the process of becoming like Christ occurs independent of of your works or your disciplines. You see, because grace is an affront to a person's pride or their sense of self-sufficiency, while you might accept saving grace, these people who adopt such a distortion set up for themselves religious codes where they seek to either earn God's favor or at least prove themselves worthy of God's favor. To accomplish this, they substitute the gospel of grace for what I would say is the three R's of religion. Their relationship with God is based on grace and their obedience to rules, regulations, then to ensure obedience, and rituals in order to demonstrate piety and devotion. The three R's, rules, regulations, and rituals, in addition to God's grace. And yet here's the truth of such a distortion. If the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace, comma, and the good things you do for God, your service, your religious works, then not only do you fail in such a dynamic to understand what grace is all about, but here's the danger. And adopting a grace and perversion, you're saying Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection isn't enough. 
that you need something more than that. That grace period is just too good to be true. But there's a second distortion. There's what I'd call the anti-gospel. So you have grace period, the true gospel. Grace, comma, and do these things. Religious works, religious moralism. The second is grace, comma, but don't do these things. You see, you're saved by grace, but you're really sanctified by the things you refrain from doing. Once again, there are people who see the true nature of the gospel as simply too good to be true, but kind of in a different way than the first. While God's favor is designed to be initially received, people who adopt this second distortion fall into the burden of now seeing God's continued favor as something they have to maintain. Sure, while they'll concede there's nothing they have to do to save themselves, they see human involvement as being essential to the process of becoming like Jesus, growing in godliness. Yes, their relationship with Jesus is foundationally based on His grace, but they believe that that relationship can be fostered, can be deepened by the things that they willingly and sacrificially give up for Jesus. You have, yes, religious moralism, grace and do these things. God will love you more. But now you have a legalism where it's grace, but don't do these things and God will love you better. That's a distortion. You see, sadly, what ends up being produced from this outlook is a wicked form of Christian legalism that simply establishes a moral structure and a church culture that demands liberties to forgo, things to be sacrificed in order to be a better Christian. Tragically, they do this in place of simply emphasizing the enjoyment and the freedom that comes from a personal relationship with Jesus founded on what? Nothing but his amazing grace. Though God's favor is given at the cross, many believe that God will simply be more pleased with a person who abstains from a non-biblical list of do's and don'ts that they often create for themselves. Once again, anyone, when anyone says they've been saved by grace but are sanctified by anything other than his grace, they're destroying the very nature of grace. See, if the basis of your relationship with Jesus is grace but the things you refrain from doing and the sacrifices you're making for him, well, not only have you revealed a failure to understand grace, but you're saying Jesus' death and resurrection are actually ins insufficient. See, the first distortion says that his death and resurrection aren't enough that you should add to it. In this dynamic, you're saying Jesus' death and resurrection are insufficient, that it's an incomplete work. There's a third anti-gospel. We have grace, comma, and, grace, comma, but. But the third is grace, comma, so I can do anything. This is the belief that you're saved and sanctified by grace, so now there's no restrictions on the things that you can do. Now, here's the irony of such a position. That person actually does understand the freeing nature of grace. Because the truth 
Is it because God's favor is demonstrated to you independently of you? You can do whatever you want. And yet, the distortion of grace, it happens in a very subtle way, different than the previous two. You see, in this model, instead of grace doing what it's supposed to, yielding a holiness, yielding a sanctified life, grace is seen as a license for whatever goes. Unmerited favor and place of sin, plus Jesus' complete forgiveness concerning sin, is seen as an unrestricted permit to sin. It's what I like to call the Romans 6 1 mentality. You've heard these people. Shall we continue in sin so grace may abound? Well, no. Read the next verse. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? You see, instead of grace yielding holiness, it's used, it's perverted for something it's not designed to do. Well, it's true. If you're worried grace can become a license for sin, you have a misunderstanding of grace. It's true that if you see grace as a license to sin, you also have perverted grace. I had a friend tell me a few years ago, I was reading a few books by an author, decided to go to a conference, I wanted to hear him speak. I had a buddy that knew him. I said, hey, what do you think of this guy? And he said, you know what, Zach, to be very honest with you, I think he takes grace too far. What? Well, first, it's my, ty- my, my kind of guy. But secondly, you can't take grace too far. Like if you're worried about someone taking grace too far, then you don't understand you can't take it far enough. You see, if in grace you fail, don't blame grace. It's you, not grace. Oh, well, Zach, it's just, you know, I ended up cheating on my wife because of grace. (laughs) What? Because of grace? Yeah, man, I could just do whatever I want. So now you're blaming Jesus? Like, that's just mind-numbing to me. It's like, what you're revealing is you don't get grace. Because you know what you need in the moment of temptation? More grace. You know what you need in the moment of failure? More grace. You know what you need in the moment of total wickedness? More grace. You can't take it far enough. It's abounding grace. The way the scripture describes it is waves just pouring onto the seashore, one after another after another. When you're tired, what do you need? You need grace. When you're struggling with it, you need grace. You can't have enough of it. It's radical and it's amazing, which makes this distortion so terrible. It's abusing a goodness. You see, if you truly grasp the true gospel of grace, period, Not grace and do these things or grace, but don't do those things or grace so I can do anything. If you get grace and grace alone, grace period, grace is all I need. Well, you will understand that being saved and sanctified by grace, it transforms who you are. It changes your heart. You have a love relationship with Jesus, which changes your desires. If you understand grace and you reside in grace, you no longer have to please Jesus. You don't have to live to please Jesus. You live to please Jesus, not because you have to, but because, why wouldn't you? I get to. Once again, it's the change of a heart 
that yields a change in behavior, not the exhortation to change behaviors hoping to then change one, one's heart. Transformation, true transformation, doesn't happen when I act a part. I'm a hypocrite at best. It happens when I become something brand new. You see, the sad thing is these first two gospel distortions, grace and grace, but they not only foster a false perception of one standing before God, because they warp the way one views themselves. But you know what they also do? And this is what makes them so dangerous. They warp how you see your fellow man. Think about it. Like one of the reasons that legalistic Christians are a drag to be around is that that person is often hyper aware of your shortcomings but totally unaware of their own. Like if you set up a moral structure for yourself, that who I am is grace and these things that I do, I will judge the person who doesn't do those things as being not quite the Christian I am. Or if it's grace but don't do these things, I will see people who engage in certain behaviors as being less spiritual than I am. Seriously. You know those people, the hyper-spiritual Christian that you just don't invite to the party. You're like, you're my brother and I love you, but you know what? Like, we have a lot more fun when you're not here because you're lame. And who wants to hang out with someone that's just snooty and snarky and, by the way, judgmental? Here's the reason. When a person embraces a religious stance on moralism, by adopting a grace and or a grace but structure as the basis, they earn God's favor. They will hold everyone they know to the same standard, one that God hasn't established, and then judge everyone they know accordingly. You see, religion, things you do or refrain from doing, it provides the legalist a mechanism by which they can maintain their own sense of moral superiority and right standing with God, by doing what? Highlighting, comparing, and condemning the failures of others. You know who Jesus had the biggest problem with? Not sinners. But these people. He called them Pharisees. It's why religious people have the reputation. And it's true. Stats reveal it. Christians who adopt such a model, they're known as being mean, judgmental, unkind, spiteful, stuck up. I could go on and on. You've got a few of, of your own. It's been said the worst thing about religion is religious people. I would add by pointing out that the worst thing about religious people is religion. Anne Graham Lotz, who's the daughter of, of the evangelist Billy Graham, she said, quote, it has been religious people, often within the organized church, who have had the most critical, who have been the most critical of and even hostile to my relationship with God. I think that there's probably a lot of you have had such an experience within church. Understand, if a person rejects religious legalism, grace and and grace but, and instead embraces a grace period, that their standing with God is through Jesus' work and not theirs, they no longer have a basis to judge anyone else, right? They no longer have a basis to judge themselves as being morally superior than anyone else. Why? Because God's favor is given and maintained independent of our involvement. Think of it like this. 
If you are climbing a moral ladder to God, it is entirely possible for you to judge those below you, right? Bro, I'm higher. I'm doing better. I'm closer. Like, if I'm climbing a moral ladder, I can judge those behind me. But, in contrast, it's really hard to be judgmental. It's really hard to have a sense of moral superiority when you find yourself not on a ladder, but at the foot of a cross. Because religion leads to self-righteousness as opposed to the sole sufficiency of His righteousness. As Pastor Joe Foch said, religion then makes us the enemy of, of God. See, when you're at the foot of the cross, humanity gets divided into two categories. Us and Him. Jesus and the rest of us. His work makes a way at the cross. It's got nothing to do with any of us. The foot, the ground, the le- it's, it's, it's level. It's not a ladder. You know, truth be told, but I am really struck by Paul's intensity in this introduction. But I'm, I'm further blown away that he says that there are some who, notice, want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Like what, what Paul's saying here is that there are people who willingly want to distort grace. That it's not an accident that it's intentional, and that is provocative. You see, why would anyone want to pervert God's grace in any of these ways? I think the first reason is that, is that all three, grace and, grace but, grace so, they have one thing in common, don't they? Me. You see, a central component of the true nature of grace is that it takes all of the power out of the hands of men. The reality is that grace and this model, it's appealing to some because it still affords my involvement in procuring God's favor. Grace but, that model, it's appealing. Why? Because it enables me now to maintain God's favor and my moral superiority with men. Grace so, it's appealing because it allows me to remain in control. Me, me, me. You see, it gives room for the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. You see, the reality is that the true gospel of grace, period, it's offensive to our human nature. It's an insult to one's pride. It says self can never be good enough. You see, grace alone requires that you admit you're a sinner in need of a Savior that there is nothing you can do to save yourself and that once you've been saved, there's no way you can ever take credit for it. But you know, there's another reason that people willingly distort grace. I'm convinced that the rejection or at least the resistance of grace bubble force from this well, a desire for fairness. Understand justice is more than the act of being just or fair. It's the act of being fair and then the judgment of those who aren't. The establishment of reparations to relevel the playing field. You see, the concept of justice and the necessary component of of, of judgment, it it sits, it stems from from a, a longing for fairness. 
Like this idea of fairness, it transcends race, culture, times, people. We want fair. It's like part of the human spirit. It's that desire for fairness that transcends into, into, into politics. It also develops another idea that people so like to gravitate towards. Karma. Karma. People like karma because it says when it's all said and done, things are fair. According to the teachings of Buddha, karma states that actions bring upon oneself inevitable results, good or bad, either in this life or in a future incarnation. People like the idea of karma because it says in the end, when it's all said and done, life is totally fair. Good deeds end up rewarded, bad deeds are punished. And yet it's that that makes the cross of Calvary an offense. It's why people struggle with grace. You see, not only does the cross contradict the concept of karma, how so? Jesus in no way did anything to deserve his death on the cross. See, karma, it violates this idea of God's favor being bestowed and not earned. It doesn't seem fair that God's grace would be demonstrated independent of involvement. You see, what, what makes the legalist in all of us cringe, let's be real, is the thought that I can live my whole life for Jesus, go to church every Sunday, read his Bible every day, have that morning devotion, pray, do good works, do mission trips, my whole life. And that in the end, I can be granted the same thing as that pagan heathen who lives his whole life thumbing his nose at God, rejecting God, doing this, doing that, partying hard, and on his deathbed awakens to the reality that he needs Jesus and that he's saved. That idea that we can have the same destiny, that bugs me. Why? Because it doesn't seem like it's fair, right? Karma. It's why we even warp biblical concepts like reaping and sowing into our own form of Christian karma. See, we want to be able to differentiate between believers, standing and status. You see, there is an aspect of legalism and law that we embrace because it comes across as fair. And yet the doctrine of grace, period, it blows that belief out of the water. While it's true, the fairness of grace is evident when one understands that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What The greatest unfairness is that Jesus died. That's what's unfair. And the fact that, that we're all saved as a result, that's unfair. Once again, two categories, Jesus who is treated unfairly and us who rightfully deserve hell but are given away to salvation. That's unfair that Jesus had to die so we could have that. See, here's the thing. Grace, friend, it's designed to be unfair. It's unfair. You have to accept it, which Leads to another question, really. 
If that's why you're resisting God's grace, fairness. Let me ask you, do you really want God to be fair with you? Like, do you really want your interactions with God to be on the basis of what you deserve? Like, that's the game we want to play? Like, that, that, that's how you want, hey, God, you know what? This whole grace thing, it's not fair. You and me, let's deal with it on fairness. Okay, let's do that. Or would you prefer God to handle you not on what's fair, but through the prism of his love and kindness. See, Paul was enraged at these, Galatians, these Galatian believers because they were deliberately leaving the radical nature of grace by exchanging it for gospel distortions. But what made him angrier is what? What were they departing from? A concept? A doctrine. Theology. Now, he's upset because they were departing from him, from Jesus. See, what changed Paul's life? Honestly, was it knowing more about God's grace? No. What changed Paul's life was the moment while he was on the way to Damascus to arrest and persecute and execute Christians where he gets knocked on his butt. By whom? Jesus. And what happens? If it's you in the moment, you're persecuting Jesus, you've rejected Jesus, you're angry like a rabid dog, you're on your way, boom, bright light, you get knocked on your tush. You can't see, you're disoriented. And then you hear from the light, yo, bro, I'm Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? What are you expecting to immediately follow that? I know what I am. Retribution. Vengeance. Boom! Right? I mean, truth, let's be real. He was, if you, you know what? You mess with someone in this church, I'm going to stand up about it. You mess with my kids or my wife. I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'm not a big guy, but I got an ugly face, so I'm not worried about it. Paul's messing with his kids and his bride. And Paul's there like, in his mind, snap, this is not good. And yet, instead of destroying him, squishing him right there, what changed his life? He encountered Jesus, and Jesus did what? Gave him grace. Saul, Saul, are you done resisting? That's what he says. It's tiring, isn't it? Kicking against the goads. Are you ready to give up? To submit? To let me work? You see, Paul, what changed his life was not a concept, but a relationship. You know, when we talk about grace, it's so easy to place it in platitudes that we, full, that we fail to understand what, what's being communicated. While God's love sent Jesus to atone for our sins on the cross, his grace, that unmerited favor, it's the mechanism that affords you 
the opportunity to know and have a relationship with Christ. Grace is amazing because it allows you to have a relationship with Jesus. Like, think about it. How does a person receive God's grace? They enter into a relationship with Jesus. How then does a person grow in God's grace? Their relationship with Jesus deepens. How then is a person transformed by God's grace? All sentences we use. The answer, their relationship with Jesus naturally begins to change their desires and impacts their behaviors. In regards to Paul, it was God's grace alone. Not his works, not his legalism, not his moralism, not his religion. God's grace that gave him the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus. And it was that relationship that did what? It freed him from a former life. It liberated him from guilt of past mistakes. Paul's life was filled with meaning and purpose when he wrote this letter. Why? Because he had experienced God's grace, which is why I'm marveling that you would be leaving this. There are some of you, and I'm going to say this from personal experience because I was there. Some of you sitting there who have never experienced the power of God's grace because while you have known about grace, you've never known grace. Paul's life was forever changed the day he met grace. His name was Jesus. And his life continued to change every day he continued to walk in grace. When he continued to walk with Jesus. Friend, I close with this. Grace, it's more than an, an idea to know. Grace is amazing because it's a relationship to be experienced. The power of grace is found in the simple truth that it's only by grace that you can know Jesus. Grace is the most revolutionary concept ever introduced to humanity. And here's why. Because unlike every other religion, grace, the idea, it provides you a way to approach God that isn't based upon his fairness, but it's rather based Upon his great goodness. It's no longer about you reaching up to God. Grace is a story about God coming down to you. That's gnarly. Close. Do you want God to be fair? Or would you prefer to just bask in the incredible nature of his grace? In a sense, do you want to be in law or under law or like me, would you prefer to be an outlaw? So Father, Lord, it's with that thought.